0: Getting to know someone is a strange thing. We shake hands, we introduce ourselves, we exchange names. But knowing someone's name isn't actually knowing them, is it? I mean, it's just the title that they happen to be called by. So we, we go through this protocol, we, we shake hands, we exchange names. And as men, at least, the next thing we do is what? What do you do? What do you do for work? Uh, Now, I think as North America, we go a little overboard identifying ourselves by our jobs, Um, but it's not out to lunch. You you learn a lot about a person knowing what they do day to day, what kind of work they're drawn to. From there, we might ask about spouse and kids and some of those things. And and once we've checked off some of those preliminary boxes, we would say, I know that person. I know him. I, I know her, but do you really know them? We know some things about them. To really know someone is significant. We often joke about how, you know, I, I thought I knew my wife until we got married and then, we, then I really got to know her. And 15 years in, I'd say I know her a lot better now than I did after year one uh, and getting to know her better every day. To really know someone is not a simple thing. It's not a small thing. And, and that's just us as finite humans. We are very, very simple creatures compared to the infinite God. What does it mean to know God? Just to think about that. Eternity will be spent getting to know God. Right? On that great day, the trumpet sounds and the resurrection happens and we pass through that that final judgment and glorification. We will be with Him in heaven. We will see Him face to face. That will be a significant growth in our knowledge of God. And a hundred million years later, we will be getting to know God more. It's amazing. To know his name is, on one hand, huge. On the other hand, it's it's like nothing. And that's exactly this paradox that Moses finds himself in um, before the burning bush. He has this personal one-on-one VIP meetup with God Almighty. And he dares to ask God, what is your name? And grammatically, culturally embedded in that question isn't just what's the title that you're called by. It's who are you? What's your essence, God? And God answers him. It's huge. He gives Moses his personal name. This is who I am. And yet that name comes with all kinds of mystery. I am who I am, Moses. I'm not like anything you know. You can't compare me to anything that you're familiar with. I am different. I am beyond searching out. It's no small thing to know God, but they're getting to know God. And knowing God is exactly where Israel fumbled. If you remember last week in chapter five of Exodus, Moses is brought to Pharaoh with the Lord's message, let Israel go? And Pharaoh says, no. No, I will not let Israel go. In fact, I'm going to make life harder on Israel. I will increase my slavery over them, increase their suffering. And the Israelites actually turned against Moses and Aaron, turned against God. Why? Because they didn't know him. They didn't know who he truly was. They didn't understand the the extent of his sovereignty. That the suffering of Israel, the opposition of Pharaoh, even the rebellion of the Israelites was part of God's plan, his process of revealing himself and saying, this is who I am. We're going to dig into chapter 6 this morning. And the Lord says, now I will show you. Now the table is set. And you will get to know a little more of who I am. I will reveal myself as the I am. I'm going to try and get through the entire chapter this morning, which is a lot. Um, we're going to do a, a high-end overview of some massive topics. Um, Verses 1 to 8 is the first section I want to look at. Grab your Bibles, open them up to Exodus 6. If you don't have a Bible on you, um, slip up your hand. One of our ushers will get one to you. We want you to have God's Word open on your lap and uh, that, that, that we can see together this is God's Word to us. Um, this is not my Word to you. That would be of no value. Um, this is God's Word to us. So uh, let's look at these verses. Verses 1 to 8 show us that to know the Lord is to know him as Savior. This is absolutely central to who he has revealed himself to be. It's right at the core of who he is as the great I am. So let me read these verses. Exodus chapter 6, starting in verse 1. The Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. For with a strong hand he will send them out, and with a strong hand he will drive them out of this land. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac and Jacob as God Almighty, but my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard their groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Huge passage, just loaded. Um, again, we're going to do a, a high-level flyby of some rich truths here. First, you may, you may have noticed a discrepancy in verse 1 as I read, depending on what translation you're looking at. Um, it, Some translations say because of the Lord's mighty hand, the Lord's mighty hand will bring the people of Israel uh, out of Egypt. Um, The Lord says that earlier a number of times through Exodus. Um, I just don't think it's there in the Hebrew. I think the ESV gets it right. It's a little bit confusing, um, but I think what, what the Lord is saying here is that Pharaoh with a mighty hand will send Israel out. He will chase them out of his land. He's not just letting them go. He's kicking them out because of what the Lord has done to him. He's restoring Moses' hope. He's saying, oh, Pharaoh's not just going to let you go. He is going to beg you to leave, to force you to leave because my plan's still on track. I haven't lost control of the situation here. This isn't a surprise to me. There's no curveball here. Pharaoh has shown his power now. I gave Pharaoh an opportunity to display the ugliness of who he really is. And now I'm going to respond. Now I'm going to show you who I am as the Lord. Look at what the Lord says to, to Moses. Verse 2, he starts with, I am the Lord. I am the I am. And he says, look, I, I showed myself to, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob. He's, he's referencing all that we've read through the book of Genesis. And, and I've made myself known to them. I've made covenants with them. That was me doing it. But I appeared to them under the name God Almighty. God Almighty. I did not reveal myself to them by the name, the Lord, or the I am. Now here again, we have a discrepancy we have to kind of wrestle with. Uh, if you read through Genesis, um, you're going to see the, the word Lord, all caps, the I am, uh, all throughout Genesis. And most of it, that's 162 times, and most of it uh, is, is Moses writing as the narrator. And so that's not surprising that he uses the name of the Lord. Um, but what's troublesome is 34 of those times, it's used in quotes. It's Abraham and, and Jacob calling him Lord. Um, did they know his name or not? It's confusing. And, and, and I admit, I, I wrestle with that. Um, two possible answers that, that, that I think are reasonable. Um, one is that while Moses is writing this down, um, he just uses the name of the Lord. He, he puts that in, um, even though they wouldn't have known it. Um, that's who they're talking to. That's the name that Israel, who he's writing to, knows him by. And, uh, and so he puts that in. It's, it's accurate. It's just not verbatim. And, and that's off-putting for us in our kind of scientific culture. Um, the Hebrews didn't think of quotes the same way we do. They didn't expect it as a word for word. So it would have been less problematic for them. Uh, I don't think that at all affects the reliability of Scripture being God's word, word for word. Um, but that Moses is just kind of using this language um, because it's accurate, the God that they're speaking to, even though they would not have known that name. The other option uh, is that the Lord is simply saying, yes, they knew my name then, but I did not fully reveal myself by that name. I didn't display who I was in the, the grandeur of that name. Most of what he did was under this name, the Lord Almighty, Al Shaddai. Uh, But now Israel's runa really know the I am. They'll see the fullness of what that means. Uh, But either way, the the picture is clear. Now I'm going to reveal myself to a new height, a new level. I'm going to display the I am in a way that I have not before. And then verse 6, he gives Moses this speech. Say this to Israel. Go to Israel and tell them this. And and, and if you want to know the main focus of the message, we just need to look at the first phrase and the last phrase. Verse 6, he opens it saying, I am the Lord. Go and tell Israel, I am the Lord. Then there's three verses in between. And then verse 8, he just ends it, I am the Lord. Here's the point. This is who I am. This is me. And what's in the middle? What is it that he defines himself by? one of the most full and amazing statements of the Lord as Savior. That's who God is. It's part of his essence. It's part of his nature. Um, There are these five I will statements in this speech, and and each of them points to this massive truth about who God is as Savior. Um, These are the kinds of things that I circle in my Bible. I don't know if you're a, a Bible writer. I would encourage you, read your Bible with a pen in hand and mark it up. Uh, And as you you come back next time, you're going to remember what you learned as you dug through it last time and build on that. So I've just circled each of these I wills because I think that's like Moses' outline um, or the Lord's outline. So there's these five. I will bring you out from under the burdens of Egypt. I will deliver you from the slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm. I will take you to be my people and I will bring you... Into the land. This passage actually becomes the outline for how they would celebrate uh, the Passover going forward. Um, This becomes a a central passage for the kind of Hebrew tradition. Um, As they celebrated the Passover, the first four of these I wills were each connected to a cup of wine, uh, like a toast. And, and they would read this passage maybe like we would read the Christmas story uh, at Christmas. And, and at each of these I will statements they would, they would toast, they would celebrate another aspect of God's salvation. And it was probably the third cup, the cup of redemption that Jesus would take and repurpose in the new covenant in my blood a new redemption. So, Let's dig into these I will statements. This is primary. You want to know the Lord. We need to know him as Savior. Try and unpack these briefly for us. The first two uh, go very neatly together. The Lord says he will bring them out from under their burdens and deliver them from their slavery. Um, The burdens were the day-to-day tasks. This was the jobs they had to do. This was the making of, of bricks as it played out. The slavery was what lied behind that. It was the the power over them. So the slavery is the cause and the burdens are the effect. He's saying, I'm not just going to ease your burdens. I'm not just going to take away the work. I'm going to get right to the root of the issue. I'm going to take away the slavery. I'm going to solve this problem completely. I will finish the job. It's absolute freedom, full deliverance. The third and fourth I will statements also complement each other. The third is that the Lord would redeem Israel. To redeem was to, to rescue from oppression. If you owed a debt that you couldn't pay, or maybe you became so poor that you, you couldn't afford to live day to day, you would, you would sell yourself as a slave to someone who would then take on the burden of, of caring for you, um, but, but you were theirs. And my tendency is to want to go to other passages in Scripture to try to inform this idea of redemption and what it means to be redeemed. But the reality is this is the passage right here that sets the tone for redemption all the way forward. As you're reading through the New Testament, you come upon this term redeemed. You can't understand that without coming back here. This is laying the groundwork. The Lord says, I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to rescue you out from your slavery with an outstretched arm, great acts of judgment, what price would he pay to rescue them? What's the display of his power, and his wrath? It's the plagues. And ultimately, he would purchase them with the death of the firstborn children of Egypt, the firstborn sons. This dovetails with the fourth I will I will take you to be my people. Later on, Mount Sinai, um, God lays out for Moses the laws concerning redemption. This is how uh, redemption of slaves ought to work in Israel. And God lays out these laws and the the closest male relative, a father or a brother, is the one who carried the burden of redemption. It wasn't wasn't a, a disconnected thing. It wasn't an impersonal thing. This was a loved one who would come to redeem. Verse seven, God says, "I will take you to be my own people, and I will be your God." This is what Paul expounds on later with the language of adoption. That God would bring us into His family, this close personal relationship to Himself. He He redeems us as His children. He's not only taking them out of Egypt, but he's bringing them to himself. And and what an amazing statement. I will be your God and you will be my people. You will will find your identity in me and I will be identified with you. Finally, verse 8, I will bring you into the land the exodus is not only a, an exodus out of egypt and to god but it's an exodus into the promised land it, it doesn't come to completion until they're where they've been promised to end up and this goes all the way back to genesis 15 to abraham the lord promised that he would he would bring them he would give abraham the land of canaan and that's exactly what he will surely do he's not going to fail at this He will bring Abraham's numerous descendants into the land of blessing, into the land that he promised for them, the land flowing with milk and honey. And he's the God who keeps his promises, who is absolutely unfailing in finishing what he starts. He will not only bring them out of Egypt and make them his own, but he will protect them, provide for them, and bring them through to the final destination. That's that's who the Lord is if you don't know the Lord as Savior, then you don't know God. You don't know God. Different religions, different spiritual people would say, oh, I know God. Yeah, I have have an interaction with a higher power. I, I know a God. But if they're not talking about the God who rescues and redeems and adopts and the God who fulfills His promises... And they don't know this God. They don't know the true God. And we just need to be honest. You you don't know Yahweh. You don't know the God of the Bible. You're misguided. They're worshiping a false God. I know it's popular today and it it feels nice to just kind of give everyone the benefit of the doubt. We don't want to ruffle feathers. Just kind of welcome everyone as if, you know, we're one big happy family. And if someone says, yeah, I know God, we don't want to question that. That's okay. And We didn't think that, that God maybe is this kind of airy-fairy concept that, 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 you know, who can really know and who can be sure? We all have different ideas, and, and, and who am I to question that? I'm sure you've heard of the parable, the, the four blind men that stumble upon an elephant, right? And the one finds the tail and says, oh, what we have here is a rope. And the next one walks up to a leg and says, oh, no, no, this is a pillar. And the next one comes to an ear and says, no, you're both wrong. This is, this is curtains. And the, the fourth one comes along and says, you're all fools. And he feels his way down the trunk and says, this is a hose. And they're all right, right? They all have their own perception of, of truth. And we use this to kind of justify our own, you know, talking about our own limited experience. And we all know some piece of God. But, but that whole picture absolutely changes if the elephant opens his mouth and says, no, you fools, I'm an elephant. He reveals himself. It's not about all of us trying to figure out what God is and looking by our own experience and what do you feel God is and what do I think God is. God has spoken to us. He said, this is who I am. What you feel about God, what you think about God does not change who God is. People love to say, well, I just don't know that I could ever believe in a God who dot, dot, dot. That's just a statement of your idolatry. That's just a statement that I have a higher principle of God and whoever God is, he must bend to my definition of what he must be rather than opening God's word and saying, I will not believe in a God who is anything other than what he says he is. Your opinion about God doesn't change him any more than an ant's opinion about you changes who you are. God has spoken. He's, He's told us who he is. These are the facts. God says, this is me. I am the God who saves. To know me is to know me as Savior. To not know me as the saving God is to not know me at all. Do you have some vague understanding? There's a a higher power out there. There is a God, or do you know the God? The God who's actually there. The God who objectively exists in unchanging reality. And again, our culture would say, what an arrogant thing to say. How dare you say that you're the one who knows God and that everyone who disagrees with you is wrong. That's not what I'm saying. No, I'm saying that God has revealed himself. And the arrogant thing is to look at this book, at God's word, and then put it down and say, no, I have my own ideas about God. I think God is more like this. No, God has said who he is. Will we listen to him? Do we know this God? And this is significant because the God of Exodus, the God who reveals himself through the Old Testament, is the God of today. The God who rescued Israel both from their burdens and their slavery is the God who in Jesus rescues us from our slavery to sin, the power of sin over us and the reality of sin in our lives, both the burdens and the slavery. Look at Romans 6 verse 12. Paul says, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies. Don't let that slavery rule over you anymore to make you obey its passions. So there's the slavery and the burdens. Don't present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God. Here's why, as those who've been brought from death to life, because you've been rescued. Your members are, to God as instruments of righteousness, for sin will no longer have dominion over you since you are not under the law, but under grace. God rescues us from the dominion of sin so that we can live in righteousness. That's the God that we worship. He's the God who redeemed Israel out from Egypt and adopted them as his sons. He's the same God who in Jesus has redeemed us, who's purchased us out from the slavery of sin and adopted us into his family. Galatians 4 puts those two together. But when in the fullness of time had come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption as sons. He rescued us out from under the debt of the law that demanded our death sentence. He purchased us, not by the death of the children of Egypt, but of the death of his own son. And he adopted us. He brought us into his family. He made us his his children. So he rescued and he redeemed and he's adopted. and, And the God who brought Israel out from Egypt didn't stop there, faithfully fulfilling his promise, bringing them all the way through to the promised land. And he's the same God who not only begins the work of salvation in us, but finishes it. He'll complete it. We have certainty in that. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 23 and 24. Now, may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now listen to this. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Those whom he saves, he saves all the way. He finishes what he starts. That's who the Lord is. That's the salvation that we have in him. And and again, this is not a coincidental connection. It's not happenstance that we look at Exodus and see these parallels in our own salvation. This is what God has been doing all along. He's building out this promise that he made. Genesis 3.15, the rescuer is coming. And now he's saying, this is what it will be like. This is how I rescue. Watch how I rescue Israel out of Egypt. And he's displaying this bigger picture of how he would rescue from sin and death, ultimately. He's saying, this is who I am. Not just physically with my chosen people Israel, but spiritually with my chosen people whom I love. It's all pointing forward. It's all leaning toward the Messiah. To know the Lord is to know him as Savior, who rescues, redeems, adopts, and who will finally save. But secondly, to know the Lord is to know ourselves as sinners. To know ourselves as sinners. Look at verses 9 to 13. Let me read them for us. Then Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel. But they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and their harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, go in, tell Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of this land. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How will Pharaoh listen to me? For I'm of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. How frustrated Moses must have been. This is unbelievable. He's given this message from the great I am, from God Himself. Now I will show you who I am. I'm going to display my power and my character. Moses, it's going to be magnificent. I'm going to pull back the curtain on, on the almighty God that you may see who I am as rescuer, as, as redeemer, as adopter, as the one who finally saves. Never before in the history of the world had God revealed these precious details about how he saves. These are new concepts. Never before. Never before in the history of the world had more glorious words been spoken. Like this, this verses 6 to 8, this is, these are the most amazing things at this point in history that had ever been said. What does Israel say? Not interested. Don't want it. Tried the Yahweh thing, just made our lives harder, just increased our suffering. Go away, Moses. Go away, Aaron. We don't want it. Do, Lord? I tried. I spoke to them. They said, no. If, if the Israelites won't listen to me, how would Pharaoh listen to me? They've rejected their Messiah. They've rejected Moses and they've rejected God. So, what does the Lord do? Does He give up? Does He simply turn them over to their own devices? Fine, go then. He said that he would surely bring them out of the land of Egypt and into the promised land. He made that promise to to Abraham. He made it again to Moses. He said he would do it. Did these people now have the power to make God a liar? Are they the ones that can stop God's plan? No. No. Both the opposition of Pharaoh And even the rebellion of the Israelites is part of God's plan of revealing himself. Showing who he is. Verse 13, the Lord speaks to Moses and Aaron. It says he gave them a charge, look at this, about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Pharaoh and Israel are put side by side now. Pharaoh and Israel are now opposing God's work. And God says, I will overcome them both. I will overcome their wicked hearts. I will overcome their rejection. We need to get this straight. Israel had no part in their salvation. They opposed it. God didn't just save Israel without Israel's help. He saved them in spite of themselves. And it's not just Israel. This is us. To truly know God as Savior, to properly appreciate Him and give Him the glory that He deserves, which is the purpose of all of this, we have to know ourselves as sinners, truly. God fulfilled His Genesis 3.15 promise. He sent the rescuer these amazing words from verses 6 to 8 have been infinitely eclipsed by this greater message of the eternal salvation that's in Jesus Christ. God himself come down. And we, every single one of us, has said, not interested. Don't want it. Romans 3 is one of the clearest statements. Verses 10 to 12. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. You were not seeking God. You were not looking for Him when He saved you. There's no such thing as a seeker. It doesn't exist. There are no good people. There's no one who understands the things of God and then comes to salvation in God. Look at how Ephesians describes it, chapter 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. That's us. Like it or not, see it or not, believe it or not, that was you. At some point in your life, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were following after this world. You were following after Satan. You lived according to the passions of the flesh. You desired things dictated by a sinful body and a sinful mind. And you were a child, an object, the the target of God's wrath. You were not a good person who just happened to have a little bit of sin on your record. We were rebels against God. We were in opposition to him. Some of you uh, maybe were young when you were saved. Or maybe you you lived a pretty decent kind of moral life before you were saved. And so you don't see this as clearly. uh, But we need to let the truth of scripture inform our experience, not our experience inform scripture. It may have been subtle. It may have been weaved through in ways that you didn't see. But this either once was true of you or still is now true of you. Let that sink in. You were a rebel against God, a hater of God. If we keep moving forward in Ephesians, what does it say? Does it say you were dead in your transgressions and sins, but you decided to make a change? You were dead in your transgressions and sins, but but you had a change of heart. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but, but you learned something new. No, it doesn't say that. It says two of the most glorious words in all of Scripture, not but you at all, but but God. He made the first move. He acted to do something that you were totally incapable of doing. Ephesians 2, moving to verses 4 and 5. But God, being rich in mercy, not because anything I did, felt, thought, said, but because of the great love with which he loved us, Just to reiterate, even when we were dead and our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace, you've been saved. Shocking. It's unbelievable. What were you doing when he made you alive? You were dead. I remember that day. I had a, a pretty good moralistic church going outward facade that sometimes fooled myself and I think kept a pretty good job of fooling others and I hated God. and He changed my heart. He transformed me on the inside. Not because I loved him but in spite of my hatred for him. The greatest obstacle to your own salvation was your sinful heart. As Jonathan Edwards used to say, the only thing you contributed to your salvation is the sin that made it necessary. We were enslaved to sin, chasing after the desires of the flesh. In order to save you, God had to overcome not just the penalty of sin and his own justice that demanded that penalty, but the sin that ruled in your heart. In one sense, God saved you against your will. We talk a lot about free will. We need to be careful how we use that because the Bible says your will was never free. You were a slave to sin. You, you had free will to choose whatever sin you desired, but your will was a slave to sin. Jesus said in, in John 8:34, Truly, truly I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. That's why Ephesians 2 says that you had passions for, desires for, you followed after the things of sin and Satan. God not only only overcame sin and Satan, he overcame your broken, enslaved, sinful heart. And you say, that can't be right. I remember choosing God. I remember wanting to follow him. I remember making that decision to turn away from sin and trust Jesus. Absolutely. I don't diminish that at all, but that's proof that God did something in you first because dead people don't make those decisions. Dead people don't want decide anything. They're dead. John 3, 5, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, so unless one is born again, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. You must be born again. That's something that God does to you. Going back to Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, Paul culminates all of this saying, by grace you have been saved through faith. And this was not your own doing. It's the gift of God so that no one can boast. Not a result of work so that no one can boast. Your faith, your entire salvation was God's gift to a sinful, rebellious wretch. You needed to, God to make you alive before anything else was possible. You will not know and appreciate God as Savior fully and rightly You will not worship him rightly until you understand yourself as sinner rightly. We don't get to boast. We don't get to say, look at me, I chose Christ. Look at me, I was a little more spiritually sensitive, a little more informed. I had a better family pedigree. And so I'm one of the Christians because I figured it out. No, you weren't. No, you didn't. You were a rebel against God and he broke in and saved you. He rescued you. And so to him goes all of the glory. So to know God is to know him as savior. And to know ourselves as sinners. And then finally to know God is to know his rescuer. Here we get into the great mystery. What does a preacher do when he gets to a genealogy? Look at verses 14 and following. It's just a list of names. It's a historical family tree. What do we do with that? Well, 2 Timothy 3.16, I hope you know that verse already. I try to use it often. I want it to be a verse that we're all familiar with. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Now think about that. When Paul wrote those words in the first century, what was he talking about? I wasn't talking about the New Testament. I wasn't talking about the book of John. That hadn't been written yet. Now, I think it applies to the New Testament. That's scripture as well. There's good, easy argument to make there. But primarily, as Paul's writing these words, he's talking about Genesis to Malachi. Do we believe that too? Do we trust God's word that way? I do. Now, that's not to say all Scripture is equally profitable, right? No one's going to say that that verses 14 to 30 are as rich and full uh, as verses 6 to 8. It's just not the case. But all Scripture is profitable, and it's necessary, or God wouldn't have put it there. So let's jump into this and see what we can mine out of it. Let me read this passage for us. Uh, If you've ever wondered, as you read through these genealogies, the right way to pronounce a Hebrew name is with confidence. Just go for it. So we'll see how we can do. These are the heads of their fathers' houses. The son of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanuk, Palu, Hezron, and Camry. These are the clans of Reuben. And he moves to the next son. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jackin, Zohar, and Shaul. The son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. And he moves to the next son. These are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations Gershon, Kohath, and Merari, the years of the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni, and Shimmai, by their clans, the sons of Kohath, Amram, Izhar, Hebron, and Uziel, the years of the life of Kohath being 133 years. The sons of Merari, Mali, and Mushi, And these are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram took his wife, Jacobet, his father's sister, and he bore, she bore to him Aaron and Moses, the years of the life of Amram being 137 years, and the sons of Izhar, Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri; the sons of Uziel, Mishiel, Elzaphan, and Sithri. Aaron took as his wife, Elisheba, the daughter of Amminadab and the sister of Nashon, and she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. The sons of Korah, Aser, Elkanah, and Abiasaph, these are the clans of the Korahites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phineas. These, the these are the heads of the father's houses of the Levites by their clans. And These are the Aaron and Moses to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and this Aaron. And on that day, when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, behold, I have uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? So obviously we have this kind of shortened, specific genealogy. He begins with the children of Abraham, the children of of Jacob, right? So we have have Abraham, to whom God made this promise, I'm going to make you a great nation, I'm going to give you the the land of Israel. And and Abraham has Isaac, and Isaac has Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons. Jacob's name is changed to Israel. Those 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel, so they're hugely significant. The list begins, as you would expect, with his oldest son, Reuben, briefly gives us Reuben's sons, and then similar fashion, briefly gives us the sons of his second son, Simeon. And then once it moves to the third son, there's a change. There's, there's always a rhythm and a pace to these things. And when that pace changes, you got to pay attention. There's more words thrown in here all of a sudden. Levi is what we're focusing on. This is the line that we're interested in. And in fact, if you notice, he never gets beyond Levi. He, he leaves the other nine sons out. He just brought us to this point. Just to shorten it up and and follow the the specific chain, one of Levi's sons is Kohath. Kohath has a son named Amram, and Amram's wife is Jacobet, and together they have Aaron and Moses. Bingo. That's what we're after. There's the point of this genealogy. It's Aaron and Moses, and, and if you have any doubt about that, we just look down to verse 27. He finishes midway through the genealogy and says, these are them. This is the Aaron and Moses that we've been talking about. The ones who God said, bring the people of Israel out. And then down the end of verse 27, this Aaron and this Moses. Significant to have this just as a genealogy, as this family record. That's not a small thing. I think we would easily underrate that. These are the names of real people one generation to the next. Now, if you look carefully at this, you'll find that biblical genealogies often skip people. They they weren't meant to be really detailed. Um, And so they might kind of do a grandfather to grandson and and move along with kind of hitting the high points. Um, But these are real people and real descendants. A lot of people today want to say the Old Testament is just kind of ancient myths. These are just stories that are put together for the purpose of of teaching. They were never intended to be taken literally true. Genealogies make that really difficult. They make that really uncomfortable. Aaron and Moses were not mythical people. They had fathers and grandfathers and cousins and uncles. Myths don't have cousins, right? They're real people. You'll hear this, um, sadly, within the church, within people who would... Claim to be Christians who just say, no, no, don't, don't get too carried away in the Old Testament. It's just there to, you know, for some kind of mystical truth. Don't take it too literally. You'll hear this from guys like Jordan Peterson, who's real popular right now. He loves to reference the Bible. But he says the, the Bible is a collection of these archetypal myths. They, they teach us things about kind of universal truths of our world. And, and the Bible has some of those characteristics. That's not altogether wrong. The way he applies a lot of it is. But the point is this. The Bible very clearly presents itself as historical truth. And if the Bible's lying about itself being historical true, why would we then trust it for the deeper, more significant things of spiritual reality? It doesn't make sense. You have to take the Bible at its word or throw it out altogether. There, there is no in-between. It doesn't make sense to say, I respect the Bible. I just don't believe it's really literally historically true. The Bible doesn't give you that option. And by the way, this goes all the way back to a literal Adam, right? He had children and his children had children. Um, and, and again, a, a this is really popular teaching right now. Like, let's not get too carried away in a literal Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve. We want to fit, you know, we want to fit uh, evolution in there somewhere. Um, Adam was probably not a literal person. Well, then explain to me as we read through Genesis which one of those children had a metaphorical father. It's really complicated. It doesn't work. These genealogies are of huge significance, and and no other ancient document has anything even remotely close. Not even remotely. It's astounding. It's almost too rich that scholars will say, it's just, it's unbelievable that you would have these family records. So we just need to, it's, it's too forceful, too good. Let's just not, let's just put it out of hand. But there's more here than just family records. This is about the God who saves. This is about God revealing himself and saying, this is who I am Aaron and Moses have a very unique role as God's rescuers. They're God's chosen instrument to bring Israel out of Egypt. And and in that, they prefigure the Messiah. They're pointing forward. This is is like what I'm going to do with my final rescuer. The genealogy shows Moses and Aaron, first of all, are of the line of Levi. That's significant. The children of Levi were chosen by God to be the priests of Israel. and By the time Moses is writing this, all of those laws had been played out and codified and understood. And so they understand this now. If you want to get to God, you have to go through a Levite. If you want to go to the temple to offer a sacrifice, to offer worship to God, to come for forgiveness of sin, you need to go through a priest. You need a mediator. The Levites were those mediators between God in unapproachable holiness and sinful people. The Messiah, the promised rescuer when he came, just like Moses and Aaron would be a priest. He would be the fulfillment of the priesthood. He would be the mediator to end all mediators, opening a way to God by sacrifice of himself to bring sinful people to God. He would be the great high priest. Secondly, and this is just a tidbit, but I think it's significant. Whenever you see women in a genealogy, um, you got to perk up. That's not normal. I know our culture will get infuriated about this, but they followed the line of the men. That was the heads of the household. And and so whenever you see a woman pop up, you got to ask, why is she there? That's being mentioned on purpose. And it's really interesting someday if you want to take the genealogies of Matthew and Luke and trace the women and who they are. I'll leave that for your own study, but it's significant. And so here, Aaron's wife is mentioned as one of the women. She's the daughter of Amminadab. Amminadab, we know from other genealogies, is the chief of the line of Judah. And so where Levi's line was the priestly line, Judah's line was the kingly line. God had promised Judah that, that someone from his line would sit on the throne forever. And Matthew and Luke show us that Jesus came from the line of Judah. And here's this subtle hint already that the Messiah would be both priest and king. I'm I'm intermingling these lines. Jesus, of course, as God himself, is not only the priest of priests, but he's the king of kings, the Lord of lords. He is and forever will be the ruler of all things. So the Messiah is priest and king. And then Moses, as we've seen, is God's chosen mouthpiece. He's the first and greatest of all the prophets. This Moses, the one who's from the line of Levi, is the prophet of all prophets. Deuteronomy 18, the Lord promised that he would raise up another prophet like Moses from among the people. Someday that's coming. And and in the last chapter of Deuteronomy, in verse 10, it says, And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. And it leaves Deuteronomy, it leaves the Pentateuch off with this leaning forward. There's a promise yet to be fulfilled. There's a prophet greater than Moses and he hasn't come yet. He's coming. One who would reveal God even more than Moses had. And don't miss this. He will come from among you. It's the significance of this genealogy. Moses and Aaron came from among the people. He will be one of you. So the... Messiah would be one of us. And of course, we know the significance of this now that that God himself would come down and be born in human flesh as one of us to reveal God to us in a way that no one else could. So the Messiah comes as a prophet, come to reveal the fullness of God as God himself as the priest who comes as our perfect sacrifice, as the mediator between God and man, and as a king come to claim his place as the King of kings, the Lord of lords, to set up his eternal kingdom where he will reign for eternity. You can't know God as Savior without knowing his rescuer. There's no other way. There's no other option. Jesus is the only way to God and the fullest revelation of who God is. If you don't know Jesus, you don't know God. It's that simple. Colossians 1.15 tells us the image, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Thibidi Anibwile um, grew up as a Muslim. He's a preacher now. And he says that, that we might agree on uh, with some other religions about general truths of who God is and what God is like. In the same way two people might uh, fight and talk about an almost forgotten friend at a, at a high school res- uh, reunion years later. And there might be some confusion. Are we talking about the same person or not? And he did this and he did that and he's like this and he's like that. Yeah, maybe that's him. Is that the same guy? Is that the same God? That Conversation ends when you bring out a picture. You say, this is him. Jesus is that picture. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. To know Jesus is to know God. To not know Jesus is to not know God. Do you want to know God? You need to know Jesus. Knowing Jesus is the only way to know God. To know the Lord To know the I am, the true God who is actually there, is to know ourselves as completely helpless, as sinners, rebels against the Almighty. To know him as the God who rescues, the God who redeems, the God who adopts, and the God who will finally save. And to know his rescuer, to know the Messiah, the one he has sent, the perfect and complete prophet, priest, and king. What a great God we have. What an amazing salvation. What an amazing Savior.